Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series in the book of Genesis called Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25 to 36 and join Dr. Newfeld now as he introduces this new series. There is a story about a man who was hired to take a census in the hills of East Tennessee, a place with a good many backwoods folks and hillbillies and rednecks. You know, he knocked on the door and a 10-year-old girl came to the door and the interviewer asked, is your mom home? And she said, well, she ran off with a moonshiner. Well, the man said, I'm sorry to hear that. Is your dad home? Well, now she replied, he pokes his head in once a month just to take a bath. Well, the man's both stunned and frustrated, and, you know, perhaps this girl lives here with an older sister or brother, and so he said, well, how about an older sister? And the girl said, nope, she's in jail for shooting the sheriff. Well, by this time, the man's overwhelmed. I mean, what kind of family is this? But he has one more question. How about an older brother? And the girl said, nah, he's at Harvard. Well, the astonished census taker gasps and says, you mean Harvard University in Boston, Massachusetts? And she said, yeah, that's the place. So he asks, well, what's he studying? And the girl said, nothing. They're studying him. (laughs) Well, if you're from East Tennessee, please forgive the stereotype. But in fact, I'm actually carrying on with a sermon series that I started some time ago, going through the entire book of Genesis. And so for the next four weeks now, I want to take on Genesis 25 to 36 and give these chapters a title. Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. I know a number of you are going to say, well, that's perfect for me. I've got wrecked relationships all around me. My family's broken. Numerous people in my circles don't talk to each other. And if I allow myself the painful task of self-evaluation, I'm going to have to admit that I need to take some measure of blame for all of this. Well, repentance and the painful task of reconciliation is good. But if you think this is a self-help series, that is, how to heal dysfunctional relationships, let me begin by disappointing you. Many of the dysfunctional relationships we're about to study will actually be about how the dysfunction happened and less about how it gets healed. Some healing does happen in the very end of the book of Genesis, but in this series, we'll not get to the end of the book. So in effect, And this is a spoiler alert, but all we will do is examine the life and times of a very dysfunctional family. But even if in this study we were to get to the end of Genesis, we would see then that the healing of the broken relationship that happened because of selfishness, well, it was never complete. It was partial. And this broken family will eventually become a nation that has its moments of greatness, but will never escape the dysfunction on their roots. And in this way, Genesis is a very realistic book. It does unblushingly and with amazing honesty tell us what actually happened to one family, sparing no one's reputation. And the book doesn't end by saying, and they all lived happily ever after. And if you like honesty, this will be a refreshing book to study. But you might still protest. I mean, what good can be gained by seeing these dysfunctional relationships without telling us how to heal them? Well, I think in order to appreciate that, it might be important to understand two things. First, it is a constant temptation for many of us to want the Bible to be a how-to manual. You know what I mean. 
how to fix broken relationships, how to deal with discouragement, how to have a great marriage, how to make wise decisions. Now, of course, the Bible does tell us how to do a great many things. But in truth, the Bible is not a self-help manual. There's always a great danger when we think of the Bible as a therapy manual. I mean, listen how James uses the Bible. And here, I'm reading James chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And notice that James compares the reading of the word of God and seeing its demands on our lives like looking into a mirror. James says that reading the Bible as it should be read helps us some for the very first time to know what it is that we look like. Knowing what we look like is far more important than knowing how to fix our problems. So why is that? Because it's far too easy to follow a 10-point program to self-improvement without understanding the true nature of our condition. And when that happens, we in effect paper over our problems rather than dealing with our need for grace and mercy. When we approach life, and the Bible for that matter, as a self-help manual, we quickly become works-oriented rather than grace-oriented. We assume our sins are small and our power to change is great. In short, we deceive ourselves by believing that all God is for is to assist us in becoming the people that we want to be. And so it's do, do, do rather than trust, trust, trust. You see, self-help manuals can be built on a faulty assumption. Approaching the Bible that way means we never see ourselves in a mirror. But when we do see ourselves in a mirror, we might be shocked to see just how dysfunctional we actually are. We might be in awe of how it is that we ourselves have been the cause of our own problems. Instead of a self-help manual, by showing us what we look like, by showing us true dysfunction, the Bible leaves us believing that we don't need a 10-point self-improvement plan. Instead, we need rescuing. We need salvation. We need grace. Seeing that one thing can be the best news that we've ever heard. Now, remember, I said that seeing our dysfunction for what it truly is leads to two conclusions. The first is that we're sinners in need of grace. So here's a mirror. Have a look. And there's another reason why we need to see our dysfunction without immediately jumping to how to heal it. As we examine the characters in our study, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, four women named Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, and Bilhah, and then 12 boys and one girl and a father-in-law named Laban, well, we might be tempted to think that all these people are just a bad lot. I mean, surely these are the kinds of people that God utterly rejects. I mean, they're cheats and liars and idolaters and manipulators and people with enemies they could never trust. What's to be said except this is how people become when they don't rely on the Lord. And that is true. When human beings chart their own way without relying on God, we quickly run afoul. Sin does have consequences, and one of the consequences of sin is that human relationships are broken. That's true. And that might be a lesson in these chapters in Genesis. But the real lesson we learn, indeed, it's surprising that this dysfunctional family is the family through whom the chosen people would come into the world. And eventually, this is the family through whom the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be born. And that tells me something we desperately need to hear. God works through sinners. 
the broken, the less than perfect, so that there be no confusion. The glory always goes to God. It never goes to us. Now, I point this out because, as you may or may not know, the story of Israel is not a story of faithful people. Isaiah said that only a remnant of them would be saved. Moses, in his day, said that the people of Israel had hard hearts and ears that could not hear and eyes that were unable to see. That didn't prevent God from working out his purposes. And is there an application in all of that? Well, yeah. Whenever we're overwhelmed by our sins and failures, we need to remember that God has mercy on sinners, but he rejects those who assume they're just fine. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came to save sinners. That means if you come from a dysfunctional family and if, and if you have broken relationships, you're definitely not beyond the grace of God. And furthermore, as we study these chapters in Genesis, you're going to see that God does not abandon sinners if they turn to him. And so what's this study all about? We're going to see who God works with and what he does with them and in them. And with that, I trust that we'll find hope because the only people God has ever worked with are wrecked, ruined, and less than perfect people. We're going to be looking at the life and times of a family whose lives are recorded in Genesis 25 to 36. It's the family of Abraham. Abraham's son is Isaac and his wife is Rebekah. And they have two children, the twin boys named Esau and Jacob. And Genesis 25 to 36 records the true adventures they lived through. In a way, I guess we could have called this sermon series Life Lessons from an Amazing Family. And even though that might capture what we're going to learn in this series, I need to tell you two things at the outset. First, this is no ordinary family. This is a family that God has uniquely chosen to bring the gospel into the world. And second, this family is constantly in need of grace. If God didn't constantly intervene, they would never have fulfilled their destiny. And what do we make of all of that? We will in this study see our sins exposed, but we will not fear. For greater than our sins is the grace of God and the assurance that God will intervene. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, sharing the truth of the Bible has never been more important. And the efforts of Back to the Bible Canada, well, they earnestly strive to effectively meet that need every day. Through the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and the many other ministry programs and resources made available nationally and globally, this ministry exists for one purpose, sharing the uncompromising good news of Jesus Christ. You know, this is our fiscal year end, a time when we make a special financial appeal to all those who support and listen to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Could I ask you to consider offering a special gift this month? perhaps a first-time gift, to support our fiscal year-end goal of $325,000. Every dollar raised sustains and provides new opportunity to share the light of Christ in a dark world. Thanks in advance for your commitment to faithfully supporting Bible teaching and call us with your gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The book of Genesis can easily be divided into four sections. First chapters 1 to 11 is the story of what we might call primeval history, that is, from creation until the call of Abraham. Second, Genesis 12 to 25 
is the story of Abraham, the man chosen by God to become the conduit of God's blessing and saving purposes to the entire human race. Third, Genesis 25 to 36 is the story of Abraham's son Isaac and what would become his great big dysfunctional family. That's what we're studying in this section. And fourth, the final section in Genesis, that is chapters 37 to 50, is the story of Jacob, the man whose name will become Israel, his family and the groundwork for the chosen people of God. And so as a way of introducing this present series, let's briefly consider the book of Genesis as a whole. Genesis is that one book in the Bible that sets the stage for everything else the Bible says. See, I think it's fair to say that if we don't know the book of Genesis, nothing else in the Bible will make sense. Genesis is foundational to understanding the entire book, the Bible. Let's illustrate that by looking again at our four sections. Section one is the story of creation until Abraham. This section tells us that there is but one God and that this one God is the uncreated creator. He is the final explanation for the existence of all things. Everything that exists is contingent on him or is dependent on him or has its origin in him. But our first section of Genesis also tells us a great deal about what it means to be human. The first section of Genesis tells us that human beings are distinct from everything else that God has made. We're in the image of God. See, that doesn't mean, of course, that we physically look like God. But it does mean that in some distinct ways, we are remarkably like God. Even though we can't create things out of nothing, we have the ability to visualize things and then make them from the materials God has provided using amazing creativity. We also have the characteristics of reason. We're able to understand the nature both of ourselves and of our relationship to the created world. You know, it's been said that the earth is like a grain of sand in the ocean of the universe and that we as human beings are like a small tick on the grain of that sand. But here's the fascinating truth. This little tick of all things in the universe actually understands that. I mean, think about it. It's breathtaking. We're in the image of God. We understand ourselves and our relationship to other things. But human beings also have a sense of morality, of righteousness, the sense that some things ought to be and some things ought never to be. We have the ability of language. We, we have the ability of governing the creation. I could go on and on. But the first section of Genesis teaches us that something went dreadfully wrong. We rebelled against our creator and in consequence, we are subject to death and to brokenness. The first section of Genesis teaches us that our first parents fell into sin and we, their offspring, have all inherited their sin nature. Truth be known, sin is so pervasive, it not only affects us individually, it destroys our relationships and it destroys entire civilizations. We're ruined. But the first section of Genesis teaches us that God will not leave us in our ruined condition. He will send someone who is the seed of the woman and he will crush the head of the serpent and set us free. A savior will be sent who in time will be called the anointed one or the Messiah. The second section of Genesis begins the story of our redemption. God has chosen one man, a man named Abraham, to be the one through whom he would save a people unto himself. God Almighty appeared to Abraham and made an irrevocable agreement with him. It's called a covenant. 
See, that covenant included at least four items. First, God would bless Abraham and be his God. That's to say, God would use all his power and his unlimited resources as God for Abraham's sake and for Abraham's good. That's that's quite a promise. No man has ever had that promise before. Second, God would make Abraham into a great nation so that Abraham would have one of the greatest names the earth would ever have. The promise of nationhood includes both a great multitude of people as well as a land, a land which would eventually be called the promised land. Third, God would bless anyone who blessed Abraham and curse anyone who cursed Abraham. And when one considers this promise from today's perspective, we can now look back at how true that promise became whether it was Israel's ancient neighbors or the great superpowers that came and went, which included the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. All these have been swept away, yet God's favor still rests on his ancient people. Fourth, God promised that he would make Abraham the source of blessing for the whole world. Through Abraham, salvation from sin and restoration to God would come to the whole earth. Abraham's offspring would be more than could be counted, and eventually they would be made up of every nation and tribe and people and and race and tongue. That's the second section of Genesis. All that leads to the next stage of Genesis, the third part of Genesis, chapters 25 to 36. That's the section we're determined to study now. When God made the promise he made to Abraham, how were they to be fulfilled? After all, by the time Abraham dies, he has no land. He has a son through whom the promise of blessing would come. But we're left to wonder how this will be. Is Isaac, the son of Abraham, the Messiah? Is he the savior of the world? See, we will see that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. What of all these promises? And it's right here that we find ourselves amazed by this next section of Genesis. The promise of global salvation, at least so it seems when when we first read this account, seems seriously flawed. Isaac seems to be a man who lacks leadership ability. He accomplishes some things, but not as much as we'd expect. And, And the text of Genesis seems to skip by his life. He simply passes into the background. In the end, he's deceived and and seems to give the blessing of Abraham, that is, the promise of bringing salvation into the world. Well, it appears he gives it to the wrong son. And with that, the tangled story of Genesis brings us to a story of dysfunction. Esau, the older twin, the rightful heir of the promise of Abraham, seeks to kill his brother Jacob, who stole the blessing from him, with the help, of course, of their mother. Jacob runs for his life and ends up in the house of his uncle, who's a, a liar and a cheat, and who seems only out for himself. And and Jacob, the next generation, the son of promise, who might be the Messiah, well, he's a man who seems out of sorts with God. He tells God that he won't be God's man unless God comes through for him in ways that will benefit him. And as we read through our section of Scripture, it seems like the wheels come off. The whole story seems to go sideways. Plan of God to save and redeem a people in this sin-soaked world. Well, that people through whom he would do it are as sin-soaked as the world itself. What is to happen now? Well, Genesis 25 to 36, if, if you don't know anything about the rest of the Bible, would leave you scratching your head. How is it, we might think, that a book that started with a grand story about God, 
of a human race created with a noble destiny, with the assurance that sin would not prevent God from sending his Messiah into the world and to redeem that which was lost. How is it then that the book of Genesis could end up with a dysfunctional family built on lies and intrigue, the threat of family violence, idolatry, and a host of other shameful things? It's not until we come to the last section of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50, that we get a sense that the plan of God is on track after all, although it becomes clear that it will take a great deal longer than we had expected. Genesis 37 to 50 promises us that the one who would crush Satan will come from Judah's line and that the nations will fall in obedience to this one who is to come. The promise is back on track. But what are we to make of our section of Scripture, Genesis 25 to 36, the section I've entitled, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People? How should one study these messy chapters? What are we to make of these people who seem to act in in most amazingly selfish ways? Well, that brings us back to what James said. You remember in James 1, 23 to 24, it's, it's about looking into a mirror and seeing the reflection of ourselves. Genesis 25 to 36 will not only show us broken people, it will show us our own lives. We will see ourselves in these people and we will marvel that in spite of human sin, God's promises to his people will not fail. What else can we think but to think that if these people found grace, won't we find the same today? John, let's go back a little bit. Help us understand again what you'll be looking at the Bible as. Is it a self-help manual? You know, that uh, to me is so important because it gets treated that way so often. When we treat it that way, we haven't come to terms with, you know, how unmanageable our sin nature actually is. That 10-point program isn't actually going to take us where we think it can. And of course, uh, you know, the biblical doctrine of indwelling sin and what it is to have inherited Adam's sin and how that sin actually works its way through, especially in the kind of relationships that we have. I think the Bible gives us a clear insight in terms of how deeply felt sin is. There's not a single area that we'll ever encounter in which we won't see sin finding its way through. That's why grace is so gracious, you know. It's coming to God and saying, I need a savior who will rescue me from that which I can't manage. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, join us as Dr. Neufeld continues with Volume 4 of his Genesis series entitled Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. This series follows the lives of Isaac and Jacob, tracing both the promises of God and the shortcomings brought about by their disobedience. And yet God is gracious and faithful to his promises. In this series, we will discover that God's promises of grace are far greater than our frailty and sin. So, join us throughout the month of June for Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. You can also listen to the first three volumes of the series or purchase them online at backtothebible.ca. And if you'd like more information or if you'd like to contribute to our special fiscal year-end campaign in support of all of the ministry programs of Back to the Bible Canada, call today at one 800 663 
888-242-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.